Good morning. And it's good to see all of you here this morning, our, our visitors and guests and some members who have moved away but are back here in the community uh, visiting and our online members. We're glad to see everyone here this morning. For those who are not in the Chattanooga Valley, you'll know that Chattanooga was really hit with a tragedy this past week and it's been all over the news. In fact, Christy got an email from one of our friends in Australia commenting on it before she'd even seen the news So on the, on the shootings here. So we want to remember the, the families in the community that have been so, so devastated this week also in our prayers. Let's go ahead and and begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and grace and for the fact that you run your kingdom in truth and love and without coercion. And I know you must look down on this planet and see all the pain and suffering that must break your heart. We ask that you will um, use us. Fill us with your your message, your truth, your principles, your methods that we can go out and, and reveal your love to a world that needs it and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing lesson number six in the... uh, quarterly, Biblical Missionaries, and the title this week is Esther and Mordecai. Somebody with, uh, with a good voice for us would just go ahead in the Sabbath lesson and, and read the first three paragraphs there, basically the whole day, starting with Esther was used. Somebody would, with a good voice do that for us. Esther was used to carry out a high-level specialized mission within the dangerous political heart of the Persian Empire. Her mission involved her in a series of striking contrasts An orphan female member of a despised ethnic and religious minority living in the superpower of her day. She became the wife of the Persian king. This was no rags to riches fairy tale. Rather, she was lifted from obscurity and groomed to carry out a highly specialized mission. It required her risky strategy of working at first undercover. Later, she had to make a perilous full disclosure of her ethnicity and faith. Supported by her cousin and foster father, Mordecai, her daring witness at the intrigue-ridden court of the Persian Empire, saved her people, reversed their low social status, and made them empire-wide objects of admiration. No doubt, as a result of her faithfulness, knowledge of the true God became more widespread among their heathen captors. Though not your, quote, typical mission story, the narrative of Esther and Mordecai does present some interesting principles that can help us understand what it means to be witness excuse me, what it means to witness in peculiar circumstances. If you notice in the lesson, it describes a couple of things in a unique way, I think, of describing them. But it talks about the result of her faithfulness. And I thought maybe we'd just start with that and looking at Esther and asking the question, do you see Esther as faithful? See, we're looking at it from thousands of years of hindsight. Just imagine taking yourself back and being one of her contemporaries, somebody growing up with her and watching her as she lives her life at that time. Without the benefit of hindsight, if best your imagination allows that, she's a member of your church, would you see her in real time back then as faithful? Maybe we should ask, what does it mean to be faithful? Faithful to what or faithful to whom? Was she being faithful to God's purposes? Yes. She's one of the ones that stayed behind. All right, thank you. So I'm going to read you a little something out of the book, Prophets uh, and Kings. This is out of the, uh, page 598. It says, uh, under the favor shown them by Cyrus, nearly 50,000 of the children of, of the captivity had taken advantage of the decree permitting them to return. These, however, in comparison with the hundreds of thousands scattered throughout the province of Medo-Persia, were but a mere remnant. The great majority of the Israelites had chosen to remain in the land of their exile rather than undergo the hardships of the jer- return journey and reestablishment of their desolate cities and homes. A score of more years passed by when a second decree 
quite as, quite as favorable as the first, was issued by Darius, the monarch then ruling. Thus, God, thus did God in mercy provide another opportunity for the Jews in Medo-Persia to return to the land of their fathers. The Lord foresaw the troublous times that were to follow during the reign of Xerxes, the Ahasuerus uh, 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 of the book of Esther. And he... <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry about my voice, guys. And he not only wrought a change of feeling in the hearts of men, he in authority, but also inspired Zechariah to plead for the exiles. And there's a quote from Zechariah 2, 6 through 9. It was those whose spirit God had raised who had returned under the decree of Cyrus, but God ceased not to plead with those who voluntarily remained in the land of their exile. And through magnifold agencies, he made it possible for them also to return. The large number, however, of those who failed to respond to the decree of Cyrus remained unimpressible to later influences. And even when Zechariah warned them to flee from Babylon, without further delay, they did not heed the invitation. So, where do we find Esther and Mordecai? In the group that heeded God's instructions to return or in the group that became unimpressible to the movements of God's spirit to, to return? Were they faithful? It's a little bit disconcerting to see this. But there's actually another lesson here. They didn't follow God's decree, and, and it came twice. They had at least two, or three, if you count the, the, the first ruler, then uh, Cyrus, then Darius, and then the prophet Zechariah. They had three times go back, go back, go back, and still they didn't go. But what did God do? Did God abandon them? Have you ever been told that if you go into a movie theater, your angel stays at the door and won't go in with you? If you go somewhere God doesn't want you to be? Here's a group of people somewhere where God didn't want them. But he didn't abandon them. He still stayed to help. He, but because they didn't listen, because they were where God foresaw troubles to be, did it make it harder on them? They had more difficulties to go through more trials, more tribulations, more stress, more adversity. Just this idea of faithfulness. Yes? On the same token, we also have angst over being in Adventist or Christian ghettos. And they were an influence for God where they were. So with that in light, influencing for God where they were, do they do that by hiding their identity and pretending that they're Persian? And we're talking about Esther right now, who's being faithful. And, and so I, no, I, don't, I don't dispute that, but if we're going to do that, do we hide who we are and pretend we're somebody else? We're talking about faithfulness here. We're, and this is a question we're going to explore through this lesson too. When is it okay to deceive people, to mislead them? Well, we still do that today. Evangelists will preach a thing and then don't come to the Sabbath issue until near the end so people don't know that they're or not happy in the Adventist church so they don't know that we're Adventists presenting them. Yes, Russell. Faithfulness is a big umbrella. The, the priests of Baal on uh, Carmel were faithful to, to their God. They, they, they did the rituals. They, they pleaded. They cut themselves. They begged. They yelled and screamed and danced. They were faithful. But to what? So what is Esther being 
commended in our lesson to being faithful to and for. God's perfect timing. God's perfect timing. I remember uh, going in gathering in New Jersey when I was young, and we were specifically told not to tell them we're Seventh-day Adventists when we go to the door, tell them we're coming to help the needy and less fortunate people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the lesson states, and notice how the words that they use, that a strategy of working at first undercover. Do you view acting in ways to deceive as being faithful? Intentionally going undercover. Covert activities. Does working undercover mean purposely choosing to mislead? Wendell. I have some questions then about the missionary activities that we carry on right now in largely Muslim countries. They have changed their names, they've changed their identities, they've changed, you know, if, if you look for that person up on Google, you will get a different entity than you would if you in. So I'm not saying I have the answer here. I'm, I'm putting out the questions. <laughs> okay. I live in a new community and I didn't go in and just say, I'm just out of I'm trying to make friends with my neighbors first before I go ahead and share what I know about that. So now we're making a distinction between not necessarily disclosing something and purposely seeking to obscure it. Those are two different things, aren't they? Jesus said to his apostles, I have much to tell you, but you can't yet bear it. He purposely didn't disclose certain things. But that's not the same thing as actively working to make someone think something other than what's evident. They use this word undercover. It can have other meaning. How did Esther interview for her job as queen? <laughs> I, I'm not going to... I'll just read scripture. This is uh, from the New Living Translation. <laughs> Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. Six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of what clothing and jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning, she was brought back to the second harem. It says that Esther, daughter of, uh, who was Mordecai's uncle, blah, 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 when it was her turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of uh, Haggai, the eunuch in charge, she asked nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. How did she interview for this job? If she's your daughter, what would you advise her? Now remember, she's working undercover. So if she goes in there and stands up for... If she goes in there and stands up for the Seventh Commandment, Will she, well, let's just put it this way. How many Persian pagan young girls would have gone in there and had some issue with this methodology? So if she objects to the methodology, does she reveal that she's not Persian? Does she brought to attention there's something different about how she sees the normal cultural processes versus how the Persians see the normal cultural processes? Well, you know, this is always, as a little girl, it's bothered me, this story, very much. And when I questioned it, people would say, I'm talking about authorities, and so they'd say, well, she didn't have a choice. When the king wanted you, you went. Got David Bathsheba. She didn't have a choice. Can I pause that? 
Because if you jump then into Sunday's lesson, it talks about Queen Vashti when she was commanded by the king to come and dance. And in the first paragraph, it states, whatever her response, she faced a dilemma of losing status and her courageous choice to retain self-esteem in the face of an autocratic ruler's base desires prepares the reader to understand the power for good that a principled woman could exert even in a male-dominated royal court. So the lesson is showing that here's Vashti, when she's commanded by the king, that she had a choice. And she said no. And they're commending her for her virtue and standing up for principle and saying no. I'm just pointing out. I understand, but I mean... So when they say she didn't have a choice, they ignore Vashti, don't they? Which is right in the same story, in the same culture. And so what happened to Vashti? Yeah, what happened to her? So when we are brought before tribunals and... Think about um, Tyndale, the reformers. Did they have choices? Recant or be burned? Did they have choices? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bow or don't bow, go in the fire. Did they have a choice? Might not like the consequence of the choice, but they still had a choice. She had a choice, didn't she? But she might have not liked the consequence. It would have outed her as a Jewish woman more than likely. But, so before we move on to the Vashti question, because there's a whole bunch of things about Vashti and what the lesson says about her that we want to explore, let's finish up this aspect with, with Esther, because I think Esther was faithful. But I'm pointing out, she wasn't faithful in the way we typically think. The way we typically think of, there's a faithful person, well, they pay their proper tie, their TV's off before sunset, they uh, don't wear jewelry, they, they, uh, you know, they, they, they don't commit adultery, they, uh, you know, they don't smoke. I mean, this is what we think about faithfulness, very behavioral. What did Esther do that was so faithful? She put her life on the line to save others. She, she put herself actually in harm's way, knowing that she could die in order to intervene to save other people. She loved others more than self. This is what she did. This is why Rahab is commended. Rahab does what? She hides and lies and she lies. More deception. You don't find a scripture that says, well lied, Rahab. Good liar. Good job. No. But what she did, if you understand the context, is she put her life on the line. When she stood up at, 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 in front of the, 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 the soldiers coming, and she says, no, if she's caught, she's going to be executed. She's willing to die to protect others. This is self-sacrificial. It's not necessarily the most mature way, but it is still an attitude of the motive of the heart that is being looked at here. Back there, yeah. I think her story is a lot more like Samson. It's just a matter of just documenting what she did. She was in a backslidden state, and she just so happened to be at the right place at the right time where she could exercise that self-sacrificial thing. But it was, I don't think it was a, uh, the whole journey was self-sacrificial. No, I don't think it was either. Uh, but when the push came to shove, ultimately, she was willing to put her life on the line to save others. Right. This is, this is, this is, and this is where true character comes out. True character doesn't really come out in the easy times. It comes out in the tough times. Yes? Would that not be the difference between uh, Joseph when Potiphar's wife came after him and he said, I cannot sin against God in this way because... His saying no didn't risk anybody's life but his own. True. Where Esther, the same issue of morality, sexual morality, it was a different scenario, is what, what I'm getting from what you're saying, that she was looking possibly at a bigger picture. 
possibly at the place that she could potentially hold to help influence her people and protect them and later down. And we don't know the ultimate thoughts in her mind at the time. We just know the behavior that happened. Yeah. So then back to, back to Sunday's lesson now, or jump to Sunday's lesson. We'll look at the Vashti question. And notice again, and I want you to look at this, what the, what the lesson authors described here. And it's in the, uh, in the first paragraph. And again, I'm going to read it. It says that she was courageous, a courageous choice to retain self-esteem in the face of an autocratic ruler's base desire, desire prepares the reader to understand the power for good that a principled woman could exert. What principle? What principle are they, are they advocating, validating, and, and putting before you as something noble to, 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 to um, emulate in the lesson? Yes. Um, well, the thing that jumps out uh, to me is the legitimate authority she was submissive to. It. You know, first to her cousin Mordecai, who as an orphan, he was her, uh, you know, parent figure. And then again to the... Um, to the man who was in charge of her in the harem. She had that submissive spirit to them, and though not fully towards God, but in his uh, hierarchy of authority. That's an interesting idea you bring forward. It's uh, worthy for us to discuss and explore this idea of submission. So she doesn't have culpability if someone in authority tells her that she should do it, she should submit and not think for herself. Hmm. I mean, this is a whole, there's a whole theology trying to emerge itself and, and exert its influence, and it did exert its influence at the GC recently, this theology that is really non-biblical in regards to church function called headship theology, in which headship theology, males are the head of the family, thus the head of the wife, thus the woman should submit to the head of the, her husband, um, the, the, he has authority, she should submit, and then they transcribe that into the church, and therefore women shouldn't be ordained because men are the headship. This is a, is a misuse of, of, uh, of a principle. Within a family, there is a certain structure, but they never find that with, within the Christian church. The, the, the New Testament is quite clear. There is one head and one head only in the Christian church. And who is that? Jesus Christ is the head of the Christian church. The only head ever talked about in Scripture. And every other believer, male or female, is to submit to Jesus Christ. There is no other head than Jesus Christ of the Christian church. And so, but this idea of submission is being used in a way for women to say, hey, don't think, just submit to those who are your authoritarian leaders. It's an excuse for abuse. It is, in many ways, yes. There are several hands up. In the back. Esther was probably operating at one of the higher levels of moral development, and we might have a hard time identifying that since we can only recognize maybe one level above where we're at. This is actually very helpful in our talk about uh, Vashti. Let's jump back to the question on Vashti. Notice I want you to see, I want you to think, read, I've read it twice already, Look at what they are advocating as the principle that Vashti stood for. What is the principle in, that Vashti stood for? And they're advocating this is noble. She stands on principle. What is the principle she stands on? In the, in the, her status. Her status. Her self-esteem. Her pride. She stood up because she was not going to be humiliated. Is that the principle that we should advocate? 
Stand on the principle of your own good reputation, your own pride, your own self-esteem. Don't, let, don't do anything that would compromise that. So Jesus Christ, when they drug him out, they beat on him, they spit upon him, they called him names. He should have stood on the principle of you have no right to do me this way. I'm the son of God. I will not be treated like this. Why is it that they're advocating this principle? There's a real clear reason. It cuts to the root of what we've been exposing for months and years in this class now. What is the big division between the kingdom of God and every other false kingdom? Self. Self is all clearly at the root. Self versus selflessness. But when I use the word kingdom, I'm thinking of government. What is the, the basis of the governmental differences? Which law you use? Are you law of love, design law, protocol, or are you have imperialistic ideas of rules enforced coercively? When you look through that lens, then what happens is they look at Vashti and they see virtue because her behavior was right. She did the right deed. She did the right behavior. She said no behaviorally to something that was humiliating. Think about the Pharisees. They had their rules. And they said, praises the man, the Pharisee, who tells his property is Corban and de- dedicates it to the, to the church. He's doing the right deed. But he's not going to care for his family now with his resources because it's all the church. Or the Samaritan. He does one deed, but the Levite and the priest, they go by and leave the man alongside the road. Why? You see, when we focus on behavior, we don't operate in the kingdom of law. The kingdom of love sometimes does behaviors like we see in that story of Esther. And you look at the blessing. Vashti stands up for herself. Vashti stands up for herself and gets deposed. Esther and Rahab do something different and they are confirmed and protected even by God. It's not the specific behavior primarily. It's the motive of self-sacrificial love in the heart. Now, I think it's God's goal for us to mature. This is, of course, what Christ said. In Matthew 5, you say, if you commit adultery, bad deed, you commit sin. I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. You say, if you commit murder, you commit sin, bad deed. I say, if you hate in your heart. God is primarily concerned with the heart. As the heart motives change, and then we mature, then the behaviors also change. But it has to start with changing the heart. You can change behavior without ever changing the heart. And then you just become a legalistic Pharisee. Many Christians fall into the Vashti trap. Looking through the imposed law lens, they validate prideful, selfish behavior as honorable if they behaviorally follow their creed, their set of rules, their 28 fundamentals, and they adhere to them rigidly then they validate each other and pat each other on the back as being the most righteous in the land. Now, can we look back at Vashti, though? And I think the lesson authors got it right. I think she did this because of her own pride. I think it was her self-esteem. But was it possible for her to refuse with a different motive? Yeah, comment. I look at these two stories totally different. Vashti was a married woman. She looked at him and said, you're drunk, buddy. Cool it. Is exactly what she said. 
On the other hand, the other young lady was a member of the, how would I say, I go all the way back to Daniel. She was a member of an elite family. Only the smartest were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. Many of the leaders from Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom went to the, the next kingdom. Why? Because they were good administrators. So I put it at along there that this young lady was a member of, let's just use the word, I think the gentleman back here mentioned it, she's a concubine. And when the king called, you went. You didn't question that fact. But Vashti was a married woman. I'm your number one wife, so cool it, buddy. Yes, there's that aspect. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the king commanded, they didn't just do what the king commanded. I think Esther, being in the harem as she was, still a virgin, by the way, wasn't yet a concubine. She wasn't yet a concubine. These were ladies taken, these were virgins taken from the whole land, and they weren't being put in as concubines. They were being put in as potential queens to replace Vashti. This was a job interview. And she could have refused the interview. I don't practice those. You can have that experience after you marry me. She could have stood on that principle. But she might have died on that principle. But I, I do think the point is well taken that she was, she was a wife. And she was a queen. And that gave her status. And in that culture, she had a certain air, a certain self-image to protect. Yes. Just uh, two sentences kind of talks about her motive. Uh, it's from Ellen White. It was when the king was not himself, when his reason was dethroned by wine drinking that he sent for the queen, that those present at his feast, men bestowed, besotted of wine, by wine, might gaze on her beauty. She acted in harmony with a pure conscience. So that's uh, manuscript 29911. Interesting. 1911. With a pure conscience. So that's where I'm going to the second motive. I, was at, I, I wasn't suggesting Vashti's motive. I was, I was actually looking at the motive in the lesson, which was her self-esteem. But I like this motive better because we we're just about to answer the question, could there have been a better motive? And what was the better motive? Could Vashti have had concern and love for her husband? Could she have realized that he had put himself in a compromising position? Having gone on record, requesting her in front of these people in a drunken way, that he was now in a compromising position and she weighed which action on her part would cause him the least eternal damage. To refuse and politically embarrass him or to consent and add guilt to him in debasing his wife in front of others. Do you understand the question? Which was more damaging to her husband, for her to refuse or for her to consent in an eternal context? It was actually much more... He would have guilt and shame on having debased his wife in front of these people had she gone on. She protected him. So this could be seen in a more mature way, as Ellen White is suggesting, uh, the clear conscience that she was actually doing this not simply for her own self-esteem. And I was trying to make the distinction between just protecting self and having a higher motive in our same action. So when you look at this, was it God's desire for these events with Vashti and the king to take place? Did God cause the king to get drunk and demand his wife? Dance. Did God cause, did God cause Vashti to refuse? 
Were the king's motives in sending Vashti motives of godly love? Sending for Vashti. No. Perhaps Vashti's motives were motivated by love, which would be a God of grace moving to say, this is a bad situation. The best course you can take, given the, the situation you've been put in, is to say no. So were the king's actions fruit of the Spirit? I put this very clearly because many people would construct how this happened. It was God's plan for Esther to become queen, and that's where God orchestrated this. This is a common theory. This is common theology people talk. God's sovereign. God made these events happen so Esther could be queen to protect the people. He took a bad situation and made good out of it. Bottom section, it says, So far in the story, the real heroine is Vashti, who then disappears from history. Her modesty... And stand on principle, open the way for Esther. In some cases, though, principled stands don't always lead to an obvious good. In the end, why should we take principled stands even if we don't know the outcome of our actions? Do you agree we should stand on principle? Oh, Wendell. I wrote the comment um, after that paragraph. Deviations from God's law of love never have a normal or good outcome. I love that. Deviating from God's law of love, deviating from how things were designed to operate never results in health and happiness. Does it? No. So, do we agree we should stand on principle? The principle on which life was designed to operate, yeah. You hadn't got there yet, Russell, but good job. <laughs> because that was the very next comment. Yes. Uh, what, what, what are the principles we should stand on? What, uh, does it matter? And are there a difference between principles and rules? Do parents of certain religious groups who refuse to give their children life-saving medicine stand on principle? Do they? As they see them, yeah. Do people who vandalize abortion clinics in order to get them shut down, which happened in Montana? It was Montana? An abortion clinic was vandalized over and over and over and over and over again so many times by Christians, that they couldn't afford to keep the repairs up, so they finally had to shut down. Are they, are they vandalizing based on principle? What about the, is the Westboro Baptist Church? Yes. Yes. I almost hate to bring this one up, because as we've already, hopefully you guys are seeing, you can do the same action based on two different principles. One being a mature, healthy, loving principle. One being an immature, self-centered principle. You can do the same action, yes? Vashti refusing. We talked about this. It be one way. It's all about ego and pride. You're not going to treat me this way. It could be I love you too much to collude with something that's self-destructive. Same action, two different principles. You see it. Okay, so I hate to bring this up, but... Do people who refuse to eat out on Sabbath do so in principle? And the only reason I bring it up, because I put a picture in the in the notes, for those who get the notes, a picture of a sign in the window in a restaurant in San Antonio that we took a picture of a sign. While we were there for the GC, there was a sign in a secular restaurant in the window, and the sign reads, Seventh-day Adventist, get your Shiloh, Shiloh's the name of the restaurant, Seventh-day Adventist, get your Shiloh Sabbath voucher here at $10 increments. (laughs) And we talked about that. There were many Adventists there who would go in during the week and they would buy a $10 voucher, which is a piece of paper that these guys have stamped with a $10 value on it, and take that voucher and then come back on Sabbath and get their meal and hand them the voucher. 
but they would not, and they would look down at, critically, somebody who pulled out a $10 bill and did the same thing. Wow. Well, in that case, just use your credit card. Go into anything you want on Sabbath and just use your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> and, some, some, and some talked about that. Why would that be the case? And, and here's the thinking of the imperialist thought, not the principal thought, the imperialist thought. Well, I purchased this voucher on Thursday. So the transaction for purchasing the actual food happened Thursday. If I use my credit card, I'm actually making the exchange right now. They still ask their manservant or maidservant. We ask the question, what witness, what witness does this leave to the non-Adventists in San Antonio? I don't want any part to do with them. Uh, you notice I said you can have an action based on healthy, mature principle. You can have the same action based on an immature principle. And that's, I'm not judging the action. I'm looking at the motive for the action. But the point is, even if you have a motive that is selfless and everything, some people looking on don't know that. They can still judge you according to whatever. But in your heart, if you're doing what you think is right, you so not have a camera for it. Is it only me that see this, sees this as silly? Because a paper, a piece of paper, a voucher, a piece of paper versus a dollar bill, which is a piece of paper, both have been a, allocated a certain amount of value for exchanging goods and services. And if you're exchanging one on Sabbath versus the other, how does, how's that different? I don't see the difference. I mean, if you have the principle, then why don't you just pack a lunch or get something and not even eat if that's the principle? It's like selling your business every Friday afternoon and buying it back Sunday. That happens all the time in New York. Yeah, they sell the business on Friday, buy back on Sunday so it can stay open on Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? Yes. They don't see the fact that the person is working for them anyway on the South. You know, I have this problem in the cafeteria in the college day. People come from the church to eat there, and they don't want to pay, but they want to eat. So I'm working for them anyway. I don't understand that. It's, it's better to go to the supermarket and get something and make a sandwich on the Sabbath. Unless putting a cheese inside of a slice of bread for them is also sin. I don't know. Were the Jews who crucified Christ standing on principle? Yes. I'm just pointing out, you can stand on principle and be on the wrong principle. Exactly. That's all I'm pointing out. It's important to stand on principle, but as Russell said, we need to identify which principle we're standing upon. Will the persecuting powers who constitute the beast of revelation and persecute God's people in the end, will they be standing on principle? Is there a difference between the situation you're in? In other words, you're in a strange city, San Antonio. You have no way to fix your own food. You could fast. There's no question about that. wouldn't hurt you. Is there a difference between that and every Sabbath, quote, going out to eat because you've worked hard all week and you're tired and you don't feel like fixing Sabbath meals, so you go out and eat? I think Paul said in Romans 14 regarding issues of festivals and Sabbath days, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Amen. I agree with that. Yeah. So, Russell. Right after we saw that sign that Tim's talking about, we a block later we walked by a bar, and there was another sign out there. And that <laughs> sign read, Alcohol is your enemy. Bible says love your enemy. <laughs> which, which, which kind of turns the, the, um, the, the voucher on its head, based on the, the same principle. This, this, is a, this is an owner of a bar who's... Probably lost a lot of money during that uh, 11 days that the Adventists were there. <laughs> he, he's poking fun at the idea that someone would buy a voucher on a Thursday to eat on Saturday. 
Uh, let's, let's go on, let's go on. I was listening to Moody Radio this week, and they were discussing God's character, and they were actually making the point that the most important thing in a person's life, they said this on the radio, was the view of God they hold. It's the most important thing in their life, is the view of God they hold. And they went on to talk about the parable of the landowner who hired workers at different times of the day, and at the end of the day, paid them all the same, but paid those who worked the least first, and the ones who worked all day got paid last, and how there was grumbling amongst those who got paid. And they went on to say that this grumbling happened because we live in a society that interprets the world through the lens of what is earned lens, basically. I earned this much. I worked hard for this much. And they went on to articulate that God is sovereign, can give as much out of his bounty as he wants to any person, and he decides how much to give, and, and so forth and so on. And they were talking about how most people have a real, when they read that parable, they get to some gut, like it just doesn't feel right. How is it fair? And they're talking about this. And, and, and I'm going to tell you the problem, and I brought this up because the problem that people have when they come to the parable is they never interpret the parable to its ultimate reality. If you simply interpret the parable, the symbols, to what they stand for in reality, it all fades away. And, and let's, let's do that. What is the, the wage in the parables of denarius? What is the wage, the coin, actually stand for? What is the reality of the reward or the wage that you get paid? Salvation. Salvation, which it's perfectly fine to say it that way. You can also say new heart and right spirit, reconciliation with God, eternal life in heaven, being renewed in the inner man. All that's it's all the same. Okay, that is the reward, is it not? That you get new hearts, right spirit, and live forever with God. A healed character, which is an arbitrary decision on God's part to give it, or it is the only outcome of accepting what he's offering. When you accept Christ into your life, and you surrender to him, it's renewal, regeneration, healing. You get a new heart and right spirit. That's the ultimate outcome. This is design law stuff. The coin, just handing it out, is an arbitrary payment. But the reality, it's not arbitrary. It's, it's a design. That's why in the opposite payment is the same as well. And what's the opposite payment? The wages of sin is death. It's also not an imposition. It's the ultimate outcome. So in the parable, who actually has the advantage, if you think about it? Those who experience God's love and truth early on are converted, give their hearts to him, are freed from living under the burden of fear and selfishness their, their whole life from early childhood on. They spend their days in meaningful service in God's kingdom, uh, the blessings of, of working in his field, sowing the seeds of truth into the hearts of others' minds, seeing others come out of that burden of fear and selfishness. That's how they live their life. Or the person like the thief on the cross who just comes to it at the last hour. Who actually gets the better life? Who gets the advantage? But they both get the same coin. They both get the same ultimate reward, eternal life, salvation, eternity with God. When we look through imposed law lenses, it creates this division. This, it's not fair. When we look through design law, well, that makes sense. So if you think about people suffering with leukemia, and one person is healed in their childhood the other person struggles with the symptoms for decades and finally is healed from the leukemia at age 70 who had the better life many christians still struggle to understand the reality of this parable today and stay stuck in the imperial system monday's lesson focuses on esther's decision based on mordecai's instruction to conceal her jewish identity so does anybody want to share their thoughts on the difference between withholding information like Jesus, I, 
I have much to tell you, but, but you can't bear it. So in grace and mercy, because I don't want to overwhelm you, you, you can't. And parents to their children often hold with information. Very merciful, very gracious, very wise. Withholding information and, and versus the active seeking to obstruct, obscure, or intentionally mislead. Are they the same? Yes. I'm thinking about, like I said earlier, God's perfect timing. When people don't have ears to hear, it's not going to be a benefit. So, the lesson actually draws us to look at the difference between Jesus speaking at the woman at the well. Jesus speaking at the woman at the well, and he says explicitly to her, when she says, the, we know that the Messiah is coming, he says, the one speaking to you is he. It's me. I'm him. She tell, he tells it directly. But it points out that he never stated overtly that to the church leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. He never came out directly and said, it's me. I'm the Messiah. What was the difference? Why did he tell her so overtly but he never declared it to them. Yes. What about the method that the Waldenses used? Okay, well, expand that method for us. Well, they would go into town, okay, as merchants and, you know, looking for opportunities to share, but they, they had to be extremely careful who they revealed truth to. But those who did, they were able to share with. So is there a difference between don't cast your pearls before swine, mm-hmm. pearls, not, not thorns, Notice that. Don't cast your pearls, your, your pearls of wisdom, your pearls of truth, your pearls of love. Don't cast your pearls, not your thorns, not your criticisms, not your, your antagonistic billboards that say Sunday is Mark of the Beast. We're not talking about that. Hey, we're talking about your pearls of truth. Don't cast them before swine, which is what the Waldenses did. They didn't go in and just cast all they knew out before those that would turn and rend them asunder. But that's not the same thing as leading the swine to believe that you're a swine. Is it? So back to the question, why did Jesus disclose so overtly to the woman at the well, but he didn't actually declare himself to the church leaders? Why didn't he walk up and say to the general conference, in general conference session, hey, I, I, I've got the message of truth. I've got the message that's going to set your people free. And you and you embrace me. Why didn't you do that? He knew her heart was ready. Yes, okay, heart was ready. It's what he would do with the information oh. that was given. But Paul, too, said he was weak to the weak. He was, he was a Jew to the Jew. He was a Gentile to the Gentile. So he was to all things because of trying to save and use that information, how it could be used. But what did he mean by that? That I am uh, practicing fertility rites with the cult priestesses in Rome? Did he mean that? I'll do that with them, too. No. Is that what he meant? No. No, he meant I will meet them where they are and speak a language that they understand. I'll empathize with their concerns. I'll, I'll feel their pain. I'll share their burden. I'll, 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 I'll do sewing of, of um, tents with, with the tent makers so I, I can connect with people. But I don't think it meant that he would share their philosophical practices necessarily or pretend to be a high cultist priest. I think he did wear his robes of rabbinical information when he went to the temple. Yes, he did. And he actually did, went through some of the rites where he shaved his head and, and did this kind of stuff for the purpose of what? Meeting, so, uh, so meeting those people who were very legalistic and biased where they were to remove prejudices. So when we were at the GC, what did I ask the ladies to do that manned our booth? And we talked about it, and they were all quite comfortable with this, knowing the people who'd be coming to our booth not because we think there's an issue, but because we didn't want to put barriers in the way of people who had issues, we asked them not to wear any jewelry. 
Because we knew the kind of minds that might be coming. We met them where they were. I think that's wisdom. We weren't pretending to be other than what we are because jewelry doesn't define us. We're not made by jewelry or dethroned by jewelry. Coming back here somewhere. Yeah. I was just going to say, what would the Pharisees have done if Jesus had announced that he was the Messiah? Wouldn't they have wanted to crucify him immediately? Well, he, he did come close a couple of times. He came close a couple of times when he said, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And he came very close by saying that, keeping the name of I am, that I am, the, the, the eternal existent one, and they picked up stones to stone him. Yes. Yeah, that yeah. upset him. Mm-hmm. But Jesus never actively misled people to his identity either. He might have withheld information, like when they were questioning him and beating him, he just wouldn't speak. Tuesday's lesson, in the first paragraph, um, it says, uh, in Esther 3, 1-5, through 5, the plot of the story starts to unfold. Mordecai, a Jew, following the commandment against idolatry, refused to bow down to Haman, a mere man. Well, there's no question, he refused to bow. The lesson articulates the, his reason for not bowing. And the reason that they cite is he's following the commandment. Now, it is true by not bowing that was in harmony with the commandment. That is true. But that puts a certain level of thinking on Mordecai. Certain level four type thinking. We've got rules. We've got to follow the rules. We're going to follow the rules. We're not going to bow. Is it possible that Mordecai actually was, was having other motives for not bowing? Could he have been operating at level 5 and had such a love relationship with God that, that he couldn't possibly consider betraying God and bowing to a mere man? It would just, like, like Joseph went to, how, said to, to, to um, Potiphar's wife, I couldn't do this against my God. I just could, I couldn't do it. I love, it. I love him too much to betray him this way. Even though it's in harmony with the commandment, is it, it just rule keeping? I've got to keep the rule. Or was it maybe something more, his love for, for his heavenly father? Or maybe it was level six, that Mordecai at level six understood the law of worship and, and how by beholding we become changed. And, and, and he didn't want to collude with anything that deviated from God's design that would be damaging to him as well as those who saw his witness. Or could it be that he was at level seven? And he not only understood, loved God and understood his design, but he understood God has a purpose in all this. And that by not bowing, God was going to bring about greater good and a greater witness. He might not be able to see the end, but he trusts God. Is it got an overruling purpose to bring good out of things when you stand for him? And he stood on principle seven to fulfill God's purpose in his life. Did it have to be simply, well, we've got rules, we've got to keep them? Or could he have done the same thing with much higher understanding? Did this mean that he was never supposed to do without the king? I never understood why he couldn't bow to Haman. I'm sure when he went to the presence of the king, he bowed. You know, um, I think the Haman situation was very much one of Haman wanting to be adored, so to speak. I don't know about social customs. I know, for instance, in the Far East, when you meet people, it's actually a courtesy to a bow like this. This is not a bow of I worship you. It's a greeting. Mm-hmm. Isn't it true? Microcosm of the great controversy. Yeah. Comment. You know, I think he almost hit it on there. I think with Esther, uh, he was doing something to get Esther's attention because once she became part of the household, she could not speak to him because he was lower than low. The king didn't speak to him. So Esther had, why is he doing what he's doing? 
So she sent somebody else out there to ask him and come back. I think it's a social thing or a cultural thing. She could not even speak to her uncle anymore because he was not, he was, how would you want to use the term, an unperson now? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think there's a lot about the culture we really do miss not having, you know, be experts on. That's, that's, that's always something that I think we should keep in mind. I wish I knew more about that culture. Uh, Wednesday's lesson, bottom uh, paragraph says, Though Mordecai obviously was following the Lord, nevertheless he showed allegiance and loyalty to the sovereign of the nation in which he lived. While refusing to bow before man, he still was a good citizen. In that, he exposed the plot against the king. And it goes on to say more comments about that. Question, what is the balance between loyalty to God and loyalty to the state? Is loyalty to God and loyalty to the state the same? Are we to have loyalty to the state? Render to Caesar. Perfect. So where does the line drawn, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God, where, where does that begin and end? If, if rendering to Caesar interferes with your rendering to God, that's when it's wrong. Does, let me ask you this. Does the state have a claim on your heart? Yeah. On your love? On your conscience? How many, though, if you really look at our culture, Where do we put our hand? Pledge what? How many have love for God and love for country? Well, to me, when you do that, you're saying, I do pledge my loyalty to America, not to Russia or China or Japan. It's to America. But foremost, my allegiance goes to God. But I would honor America before I would any other country. So our, our, our government has loyalty or claim on our cooperation with its system of governance in harmony with godly principles. Yes? No? No? So does our, does our, our nation have and expect our cooperation with slavery? Should we cooperate with slavery? Yes? In all of these things with Esther and what you did about the jewelry, it's our faithfulness to our mission. Now, of course, you can flip it over to uh, in justifying the mean, but all of this through the different things we do is a faithfulness to our mission. Have you ever traveled in a foreign country? And when you're in that country, did you familiarize yourself with the basics of the day-to-day laws there, if you're driving, they're driving laws and the things you can legally do and not legally do. And did you try to conform and live in harmony with the laws of that country while you were there? Did you care about who was getting elected mayor of the city you were visiting? Did you care about the local politics and who was doing this and that? Did it really matter? Whenever I've traveled, I didn't care about any of that stuff. I didn't get caught up in it. It didn't matter to me. But I did. I was aware of their laws. I didn't want to get in and violate and cause any tensions. I wanted to be a, a harmonious citizen. But I could care less who their president was, their prime minister, their, their policy on, on Medicare or Medicaid or whatever social policies. They, I could care less. It didn't matter to me one bit. I was in their country, but I was not of their country. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Have we gotten there and we achieved that status where we are good, law-abiding citizens who never want to make waves and, and cause disruption and, 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 and be disobedient to reasonable social structure. That, but we're, we're not of this 
world. We have, we have another world. Our, our citizenship, according to Paul, is where? We are citizens of a different kingdom. And that's where our loyalty and heart is. And I think we can get tricked with certain principles. Nationalism. Patriotism. That sounds so virtuous. That ties our heart to a system of worldly structure that could divert us. And we can divert our energies into fighting to make America the city that sits on a hill, the light on the hill, as Ronald Reagan said. That's America, the light on the hill. Is America the light on the hill? No. No. (laughs) It never was. It never was the light on a hill. It might have started out with some principles that were lights, but America itself never was. God, Jesus Christ is the light on the hill. The church is to be the light on the hill. Yes. How hard is it to teach Bible prophecy about the beast that came up out of the earth if you're passionate about America? When you know the reality is, it's going to be the thing that destroys God's people. It's pretty hard to do. I mean, I, I, I have the utmost admiration for our Constitution. God's hand was over it. But if you look at the country and the elected officials, they're doing things that are not harmonious with the Constitution. And we should be concerned about it more than appreciating and having heartfelt emotions for them. And, and sh- yeah, I agree with you. I agree with that completely. But sh- d- will the church fulfill its mission if we focus our energy on reforming the U.S. government and getting the right judges in the Supreme Court and the right presidents in office and the right senators and passing the right legislative acts? So you, you can legislate as many laws as you want. And how many do you think have been legislated in this country? But legislation is imperial system. It never changes hearts. We have a message that frees people from living in fear and selfishness, that turns them to altruism and love and compassion to others. And for such a, such a way of living, there is no law, Paul says. There's no law against this. Yes. As a, a citizen of God's kingdom, you want the best, though, for his children that are part of this kingdom. And so consequently, you may work through social values and through elections and whatnot, to gain better things for his children in this kingdom. Sure. Because you want the outcome to be better for his children. Excellent. Whether that takes a, a donation or whether that takes activism within a cause. Or time. Or time. I jump to Thursday's lesson real quick in closing. In the first paragraph, it talks about, um, no question the book of Esther is not a typical story. Uh, yet uh, we can see some, something like this scenario happening here toward the end. As a result of the king's edict on behalf of the Jews, many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Some commentators argue that there could not have been a true conversion experience since fear and anxiety should have no place in proselytizing. While that's true, who knows in the longer run how these people, whatever their motives at first might have been, have, have responded to the working of the Holy Spirit especially after seeing the great differences, blah, 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 blah. What do you think about this idea of fear as a tool in proselytizing and converting people? Most of the evangelistic series I went to have that. Well, I'm going to tell you, just because we're running out of time, let's just jump to this. Is it appropriate in today's society to teach our children to be afraid of jumping off the Empire State Building? Is it appropriate to teach our children to fear walking into a, a, a busy traffic? Do you notice where I'm going with this? Is it okay to be afraid of partaking illegal drugs? Not because they're illegal and you might get arrested and prosecuted, but what will those illegal drugs do to you? That you fear them. Do you notice what it's appropriate to be afraid of? Deviations from design law. 
Because every deviation from design law is destructive. When we present a gospel that God is, is God of love and he's built the universe to operate this way, and when we deviate it, it destroys, it causes pain, it severs, it damages, it tears us under. We should fear sin. But Satan has got the Christian world so turned upside down and backwards under an imperialistic system that we don't fear sin. We fear the authoritarian dictator who is presented as the sovereign of the universe who will punish you for that sin. Exactly. We come back to design law. Then we don't, we, we fear sin, but we never fear running to God. In the same way, even if a child who has been disobedient and has been doing something they shouldn't and they got hurt, they don't fear mommy. They cry out immediately, mommy, mommy. Why are they crying for mommy? Because they know mommy won't hurt them. Even though they disobeyed and they got hurt, mommy's going to pick them up and put them back together and fix what's broken. That's how we're to present God. He is constantly coming after us to pick us up and to fix what's broken. When we present him as this dictator in the sky, then people, are, then evangelism goes out and preaches of this punishing God who must get you for breaking the rules. We have to come back to to the third angel's message, a message of him who made, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the designer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have created us and you've created your universe to operate in such an amazing, beautiful perfection. And we realize that we we still stand far short from that perfection. But it's your, your heart's desire to heal and fix us. We open our hearts and minds to you now. Ask you in with your spirit to take all Christ has achieved for us. Reproduce it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Give us hearts to love. Hearts that overcome fear and insecurity. Hearts that that love the truth and grow in the truth every day. And open the, the way for this message to go worldwide, Lord. Pour out your spirit on the resources that we gave away at the GC a few weeks ago. That hearts and minds all this world will come to this message and start sharing it in their community. We pray in your holy name. Amen.